Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25 this morning. You know, the preacher has a fine line to walk. Um, be real with this pastor, be vulnerable, share your heart, share your life, but not too much. Don't be too vulnerable, just enough. And we'll decide what's enough once you tell us whether that was enough or, or just right. Um, the real danger that I, that I think that we face in the modern church is portraying this idea that there is a class of person that doesn't really deal with sin, that doesn't wrestle, doesn't have to fight against sin. And if there is that person, it better be our pastor, right? And I'm not about to confess a moral failure, okay? But I'm just saying that if there is a type of person that we expect doesn't have to fight against the flesh, fight against sin, then it better be our pastor. And the trouble is that when we settle into this idea that there's a class of person that doesn't have to deal with sin, we either get really hard on ourselves, right? And we imagine that we have to be perfect and, and we live in this pretense or we say, well, that's our pastor, that's Alex and Laura, they're missionaries and, and we're in a separate class so we don't have to fight against our flesh, we just are gonna give in. Does that make sense? I see those two dichotomies. When you, if you embrace a two-class system, then one of two things happens. Either you pretend to be in the first class and you're pretentious, or you just say, you know what? I'm not in the first class. I know who I am, and I'm just going to be second class. And I want to defeat that at every opportunity, and this passage gives us a real opportunity to defeat that idea. There's not two classes of Christians Every one of us has to fight the flesh. I can remember, I wouldn't tell you a story about my life and, and uh, just, it was only three years ago. Uh, my wife and I were going through some of the most difficult times in our marriage. So I want, you to th I want you to let this sit on you, okay? We've lost a daughter. I've been deployed twice. We've moved across the country two or three times. And the hardest times of our marriage, the hardest years, months of our marriage were just three years ago. Now, some of this makes sense because, hey, it was a hard time for everyone. I mean, COVID. But this happened, this was taking place just before COVID. So it wasn't just that, though COVID exacerbated it. If there were ever a time in our lives where we put the, uh, the commitment that we made to one another, that we would never get divorced to the test, it was that time three years ago. If we ever were stretching the bounds of that commitment to one another, it was three years ago. And there was one moment, one evening, where we were in the middle of an argument. And I would say, Kelly and I know how to fight fair. You know, we're not screaming and throwing things and calling names. But it just seemed as though we couldn't have a conversation without it turning into an argument, without it turning into conflict. We would do a date night every week. And every date night ended the same way with frustration and tension. And here's one night where 
in, my, in our bedroom and, and we're having this tension, this, this conflict, and I walked out of the room. And I grabbed my keys and I walked down the stairs. And, and guys, knowing, knowing how decisive this was based on what I did do, I shudder at the thought if the Lord had not prevented me from, from leaving. My point is this. I'm at that point at least 15 years a Christian. Nine years or so a lead pastor. And I feel like I was this close to who knows what? I mean, that, that, that was the thing. I, I was walking down the stairs with my keys in my hand and I had no idea where I was going. And I had no idea if or when I would come back. And I was terrified at that reality. And thankfully, just a few weeks earlier, one of the men in my connect group who had endured some extremely difficult marital conflict. And in fact, he's op he has shared about this with our men's group and th they talk about this, but they had been separated and they had just come back together. And he shared with our connect group that the decisive moment for them, he said, I had to humble myself. And so I'm walking down the stairs and I hear this man's voice in my mind saying, I had to humble myself. And there was a moment. I knew in that moment that I was acting in the flesh. I knew that I was walking down the stairs, fleeing in the flesh. This was not the Holy Spirit saying, hey, take some time to cool off. No, this was my flesh saying, leave. And I've never done that before. And I heard that man's voice say, I had to humble myself. Now I had a, now I had a decision to make. And this is why it's so troubling to me, why it's so terrifying to me. If I did not obey the Holy Spirit in that moment, if I chose instead to follow my flesh out the door, I have no idea how far it would take me. I know how depraved my heart can be. And again, I, I, I reflecting on what the Lord did because instead of walking out, I walked back and humbled myself and I literally sat on the floor in front of my wife and said, okay, I'm listening. And that was the turning point for our marriage. Because of how decisive that moment was, I have no doubt that the enemy would have wreaked havoc had I walked out in my flesh. Folks, praise the Lord. And I talked to Kelly this morning. I said, can I share this story? And she said, yes. And she's probably watching online. And if she is, she's probably crying right now. But praise the Lord for intervention of the Holy Spirit. 
But listen, and we're in a wonderful place. And my wife and I will never get divorced. However, it is within me. Do you hear me? And it is within you. Years ago, a local pastor, well-established in his church, had to deal with the sexual immorality of a youth pastor who had committed immorality. I don't know that they had, you know, exactly what they did, but it was definitely an immoral, inappropriate relationship with a teenager in their church. And you talk about, you talk about tense. I don't even know if that's, the, if that's strong enough of a, of a word. And they dealt decisively with this youth pastor and he repented and he was dismissed and he was, I, I don't know what happened to him after that, but he was, he was dealt with appropriately. And then the, the family got counseling. And, but that senior pastor had to look at his congregation and say, here is the cold, hard reality. What is within that man is also within you. There is no end, there is no limit to your depravity, even as a Christian, I believe. You give into the flesh and you keep giving into the flesh and you keep denying the Holy Spirit and you keep, you keep saying no to the Holy Spirit and you keep ignoring conviction and ignoring conviction and brother and sister, there's no limit to where you might go. I was sharing this with a, another pastor and, and he said, you know, Brian, whenever we hear of, of a pastor falling to, to immorality, our immediate response is, well, they must not have been a Christian. I want you to think about what that mentality portrays or, or, or reveals in your thinking, in our thinking. If, if he's capable of, of falling to immorality, I'm not talking about someone that is habitually immoral and finally gets caught. I'm talking about a man who, who commits adultery, fornication, pornography, and is repentant of it, and we go, well, you must not have been Christian. What does that betray in, uh, uh, what does that reveal about our theology? It reveals that we think that there's a point at which you can outgrow sin. And you never have to worry about sin again. And I, and I am so thankful for Paul and for his vulnerability in this passage in Romans chapter 7. Because if anyone should have been able to outgrow sin and outgrow the flesh, it was Paul. And yet I want you to hear what Paul says in Romans 7, 21 through 25. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for passages like this that reveal to us that we should never, ever let our guard down.
that we should never presume that I'm okay, that I've dealt with this sin, I never have to think about it again. And I never have to uh, worry about following my flesh into the pit again. Father, I pray that you would help us to hear your word and to give you thanks for it and to give you thanks for the Holy Spirit. It is only by his power and by your grace that we can live a victorious life, but we can live victorious. Praise be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So Paul says, I find it a law. I find it to be a law, a rule of thumb. He's not saying like the law of Moses. I find it to be a, a rule of thumb, this like Murphy's law, right? Like Murphy's law, that when I want to do right, when I want to live right, think right, act right, please the Lord, evil lies close at hand. It's never very far from me. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now, who delights in the law in their inner being? Who does that? Well, David did that. The blessed man did that. The man after God's own heart did that. Look at what Psalm 1-2 says. Speaks of the blessed man. The blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. If we go to Psalm 119, over and over and over again, we hear the words of David, I delight in your testimonies, in your commandments, in your law. And he summarizes it in verse 97, I love your law. But the Jews, they delighted in the law of the Lord. So, so the, the debate here, remember from last week, the debate is whether Paul is speaking of his own current circumstances and therefore, like me, being vulnerable with you, is saying that brother and sister, in, even in Christ, as one who has been born again, set free from sin, your flesh can still drag you away if you allow it to. It's either that, or Paul is speaking of his former life as a zealous Jew. And so someone would say, yes, but Brian, so I would say, who delights in the law of the Lord? I would say a faithful man, right? Who delights in the law of God in his inner being, in his heart of hearts? Who does that? I see it as a man after God's own heart, a godly man, a faithful man. Someone would say, ah, but Brian, the Jews delighted in the law of God. And I would say, you are wrong. And here's what I would appeal to. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to the most religious Jews. And he's quoting Isaiah. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of your hypocrisy, uh, of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What did Jesus see in the religious Jews of his day? That they delighted in the law of the Lord in their inner being? No, they delighted in something, but it wasn't in the law of God. What was it? 
Matthew 23, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They delighted in something, and it was relative to the law of God. But what they delighted in was not in the law of God, but rather in the praise of man. So they used the law of God in order to be praised by man. Now, does that sound like what Paul says? I delight in the law in my inner being? No. No, here I'm convinced that Paul is speaking of himself because I don't hear, I don't hear a zealous Jew, unregenerate Jew, saying I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. Jesus saw through their facade and, and Luke, as he captures this parable in 18, also sees this. Look at what Luke says. He's, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's key right there. Luke, Luke saw this. Luke re- understood this, that these j- religious Jews, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's what Jesus said. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And and he goes on to say that the tax collector beats his chest, won't even look up to God, won't draw near and says, I am the sinner. And Jesus said, it's the tax collector that went away justified before the Lord. So Jesus saw through it. Paul knew what he had experienced as a religious Jew, as a Pharisee. He didn't delight in the law of the Lord in his inner being as a Pharisee. He delighted in praise of man and he thought that he was righteous in himself. But now as a believer, Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I love Jesus. I love the Lord. I love his word. I want to do what's right. And even though I love him, and even though I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. It's not far from me. It's not even further than my own members of my body. Look at what he says in verse 23. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. How far is sin away from him? How far is evil away from him? In his own members. He doesn't have to go looking for it. It's right there in his own body. It's right there in his own flesh. This war is is a conflict between the inner being and the flesh. And the flesh is characterized by a predisposition towards sin. As much as Paul delighted in the law of God, in his inner being, he genuinely loved Jesus and genuinely wanted to live a life that honored him. And as much as that was true, he recognized that in my body, in the members of my body, in my flesh, there is still a propensity to go back to the life that I left, to still sin. 
There's this law, there's this fundamental truth. There was an impulse which waged war against the law of his mind, against his inner being. He says, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now that's an interesting phrase, making me captive to the law of sin. And this is a legitimate argument that Paul is speaking of his former life. Because how can someone say, as one who has died to sin and therefore been set free from sin, Romans 6, how can someone who has been set free from sin also say that I'm held captive to sin? What about Romans 6, 7? The one who has died has been set free from sin. See, there it is right there, Brian. It's former life. But look down a few verses in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. In the same line of reasoning, Paul exhorts these people who have been set free from sin, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So you are set free. Remind yourself you've been set free. You are new in Christ. Remind yourself you're new in Christ. Why would we need the exhortation? Why would we need the reminder? If we've been set free from sin, we don't have to, we don't have to ever deal with sin again in our life. Why would we need that reminder? Because sin dwells within even those who have been set free. There is still this pull of the old man back to the life that we hate. Left unchecked. In other words, we we don't submit to the Lord. We don't ask the Holy Spirit. We don't depend upon the Holy Spirit. If we left our, our flesh unchecked, we can expect one thing, sin. If we are not constantly, in the words of the Puritans, mortifying the flesh, if we are not killing the flesh on a daily basis, then there's one thing that we can expect out of ourselves, more sin, more sin. Once again, we live in this tension of the already not yet, And I want you to see that that, that Paul expresses himself pretty clearly about how he feels living in the already not yet. In verse 24, wretched man that I am. Right? You ever been there? You ever gotten to that place? Why do I still fight my sin. Why is this even a thing? Lead pastor now for 15 years. Christian for 20 years. Raised in church my whole life. I love Jesus. Why is it even a wrestle for me? Wretched man that I am. 
sin leaves you broken and ashamed and exhausted and isolated and feeling like a wretched, wretched man. It's no wonder there are so many popular songs that depict this sentiment. What comes to my mind as I think about this is a pop country artist named Jelly Roll. Funny name, deadly serious content. I wanna share some of the lyrics from three of his songs that I think you'll see capture the sentiment of Paul, wretched man that I am. In his song, Save Me, he sings, somebody save me, save me from myself. I'm so damaged beyond repair. I'm a lost cause. In his song, Need a Favor, says, I only talk to God when I need a favor. And I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. So who the blank am I to expect a savior if I only talk to God when I need a favor? But God, I need a favor. And son of a sinner. He sings, I'm just a son of a sinner searching for new ways I can get gone because I'm only one drink away from the devil. These pills pretend to be my friend. I'm done for the last time. I'm lying to myself once again. Mistakes I made, I paid for them in cash, walked a million miles on broken glass. I'm feeling like I'm fading. My heart's been slowly breaking. Might pop a pill and smoke and maybe drink, talk to God and tell him what I think. At first he's gonna hate me, but eventually he'll save me. This breaks my heart. And the reason that I know these lyrics is, I don't know, I, I don't know, they popped up somewhere, but, but I resonate with him and not only I mean, you know, I, I, I'm saved. I'm thankful for what God has given me. But I think about all the people who are listening to him that resonate, and that's where they stop. And they go, no, jelly roll. No, that's not the end of the story. And I pray for him all the time. I do. I pray for jelly roll. And he's, he's one of the most popular artists out there today. Why? Because there's this collective awareness of the deadliness, of the emptiness, of the tragedy of sin. There are people that, that, that listen to him and they go, yeah, that's what I feel. I'm a lost cause. How can I expect a savior if all I ever do is pray when I need a favor? At first he's gonna hate me. This, this is what the world thinks. At first, God's going to hate me. He says, eventually, he'll save me. I don't know what he means by that. Jelly Roll grew up in the church. <sighs> Jelly Roll sees his brokenness, and he sees the hopelessness, and he sees the death caused by his lifestyle, and obviously, lots of people see it, and maybe you in this audience or watching online, you resonate too. Like, how can God love me? Why would he do anything for me? I'm a lost cause. Wretched man that I am. 
Now listen, if Paul is describing a pre-Christian experience in Romans 7, then this is where the story ends. Because this is where the lost stop. There's an acknowledgement, I'm broken. They can see the destruction. They see a million miles of broken relationships and crushed dreams behind them. But that's it, that's where it stops. Wretched man that I am. Who the blank am I to expect a savior? Jelly roll, you are exactly who Jesus came to seek and save. And everyone who resonates with the sentiment of jelly roll in those songs, you are exactly who Jesus came to seek and to save. In fact, I would say that that's a requirement to be saved. To recognize that you're a lost cause. To recognize how wretched I am. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you don't get to that poverty of spirit, then you don't get to Jesus. But I want you to observe here that Paul doesn't end with that statement, with that cry of desperation, wretched man that I am. That's not where Paul stops. He asks a question. And I want you to notice that he doesn't ask, what must I do to be delivered from this body of death? Because that's also where the unregenerate, religious or not, that's where they go. I'm broken. What do I need to do to fix myself? You with me? I can see the death in my life. I can feel the anguish, wretched man that I am. What must I do? You tell me what to do and I'll do it. You give me 12 steps and I'll take them. Tell me what to do to save myself. And therein lies the belief that we can save ourselves. You tell me what to do and I'll do it. I finally got to an end of myself. I know I'm broken. What do I have to do? But that's not what Paul asked. He didn't say, what do I need to do to get out of this mess? He asked and said, who will deliver me from this body of death? Deliverance is not a what. Deliverance is a who. That's the difference between religion and relationship. Between works-based salvation and grace-based salvation. It's not what do you do, it's what does Jesus do that you can't. It is who will rescue me, who will deliver me from this body of death. Praise the Lord for verse 25, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the answer. 
Who's our deliverer? Amen. Thanks be to God. Paul says, who will deliver me? And then he answers, thanks be to God. God's going to deliver me through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. Who's going to rescue me? Who's going to save me? Who's going to make a a, a difference in my life? Jesus Christ will. I'm broken. Wretched man that I am. I need Jesus. Thanks be to God. Jesus said that he, the son of man, came to seek and to save the lost. Do you, do, you, do you resonate with that? Do you realize that Jesus is not something that you do to deliver yourself from sin? Uh, folks, I, I think there are, are many Christians who imagine that deliverance is found in doing Jesus. Meaning we do works in Jesus' name. We come to church, we read our Bible, we go on mission trips, we give, we fast, we pray. All of this to deliver ourselves. And that's a dead, cold religion. No, the gospel says Jesus does everything. Jesus delivers you. And notice that Paul asks in the future tense, who will deliver me from this body of death? Listen, the reality is is that until Jesus comes back, we still wait for full deliverance from the body of death. As we get into Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at the future hope. Paul says the future hope is the restoration or the redemption of our bodies at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, who hopes for what he sees? In other words, this is future. We live in the already, not yet. We're waiting for deliverance finally and fully from this body of death. Because in my members, in the members of my body, sin dwells. And in my heart that has been regenerate and made new and made alive by the Holy Spirit and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I want to honor God. I long to live for his glory. And yet this body of death, this flesh, still pulls me toward evil. The solution is Jesus Christ, our Lord And again, if if Paul is speaking of his former life, then it begs the question, how does a lost person make the statement that Jesus Christ will be my deliverer and Jesus Christ is Lord? That is the statement of a born again follower of Christ. You must be born again to sincerely believe that Jesus is your deliverer and your savior. If you believe that Jesus is your deliverer and your savior and is Lord, you are saved. So that's a regenerate statement. Well, maybe Paul is saying what what he's portraying here in Romans chapter seven is, is the struggle of living life trying to please the Lord while I'm not saved, while I'm not regenerate, while I don't have the Holy Spirit, and coming to an end of myself, and then here in verse 25, I'm born again, and I see that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then what we would expect is for the very next statement to be Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
right? So wretched man that I am, I recognize my depravity. I ask the question, who will rescue me? I go to my pastor. I say, Brian, I, I, I need some help. And I say, Jesus. And you say, okay, Jesus. And then the very next statement is there's no condemnation. If, if Paul had in mind the unregenerate in Romans 7 and the regenerate in Romans 8. But that's not what he does. No, he throws in something that is counterintuitive. The next statement is out of place if what Paul has in mind was the, the lost in Romans 7. He says, I myself, you see it in verse 25, I myself, which is synonymous with I, Paul, this clinches it for me. This clinches it for me. Who, who is Paul speaking of in Romans 7? I, myself. He's concluding, so then. So then. All of chapter 7 concluded in this statement. So then. I, myself. I, Paul. Serve the law of God with my mind. I worship. I read. I study. I long to be faithful but with my flesh I saw, I served the law of sin. Now I think it's pretty clear what he means when he says I serve the law of God with my mind. I think that's pretty clear. I wanna do what's right. Right, how many of you are there? I, I, I want to live a life that honors God. I hope that all of you who bear the name of Christ resonate with that statement. I serve the law of God with my mind. But what does he mean when he says, I serve the law of God with, uh, the, serve the law of sin with my flesh? What does that mean? Is that permission to engage in sinful lifestyle? By no means, Paul would say and has said over and over again. This is a difficult thing to understand. And there are things that Paul writes that are difficult. Even Peter acknowledged there are things written by the Apostle Paul that are hard to understand. This is one of them. But here's what I think he means. When I let my guard down, when I go through life on cruise control, when I am not mortifying my flesh, when I am not going before the Holy Spirit saying, Lord, I am utterly dependent upon you this day and throughout this day, then I can expect only one thing. That at least at some point in my day, I'm going to do something that I regret. And maybe several times throughout my day, I'm going to do something that I regret. Now again, folks, I think that, that one of the errors that we make is we have such a low esteem or regard for sin. And we th when we think, well, what do you mean, Brian, that you would do something that you regret? Like you would give in to, you would go get wasted. You would go cheat on your wife. You would go rob a bank. 
like way up here. No, I'm talking about like I would find myself filled with pride over my achievements. No, I'm saying that I would, I would respond with, uh, with the wrong tone in a conversation. I would pursue selfishness. Well, those aren't really sin. That's how we live functionally. There's a whole book about it. Our, our connect group's going through this, respectable sins. The, today, our, our connect group is going through the chapter on pride. The pride of having the correct doctrine. It's insidious. Our estimation of sin is, is so low that we think, well, I didn't look at pornography, didn't get drunk, didn't steal. And so what's, what's the point? Like, I'm good. I, today, I have perfectly honored the Lord in my heart, and I'm really proud about that fact. Right? Left unchecked. We can expect our flesh to do one thing. Lead us into sin. If one thing is clear about Romans chapter 7, regardless of which way you interpret this, and I want to be very, uh, be very gracious. I'm convinced that he's talking about himself. But I want to be very gracious to those who believe that Paul is talking about his former life. But one thing is clear, regardless of how you interpret Romans chapter seven, Romans chapter seven is talking about a life lived apart from the Holy Spirit. And if I can be perfectly honest with you, I am very concerned of how many of you that is normal life. The Barna research group recently, I mean, in the last couple of years, I don't think it's gotten any better revealed that like 25% of, of professing Christians never read their Bible. And like only 16% say they read their Bible every day. And so I'm thinking, what are you doing? You don't pray, you don't read, you don't submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. What do you, what do you think you're going to do today. Left unchecked, your flesh will take you places you could not even imagine. And maybe you've come from places that are hard to imagine and you think, well, now I'm in Christ, I'm good. That's dumb and dangerous. Wretched man that I am. Who will at some point deliver me from this body of death on the resurrection day, Jesus Christ will deliver me from this body of death and my body will be redeemed. And I will never have to worry about sin again on that day. Until then, brother and sister, I am utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit every single day. Do you realize that? Then do something about it. Stop making excuses. I don't have time, I don't have energy, I can't wake up early, I can't read. Or I don't have the, the discipline to read. I shudder to think what 
my life would be like today if I had continued walking in the flesh, resisting the Holy Spirit that night on my stairs. Based on how decisive it was that I turned around and humbled myself before the Lord and before my wife, my guess is that I would no longer be your pastor, maybe no longer married. The flesh wants to destroy you. And if you're not destroying it, brother, sister, what are you doing? Listen, I want you to know that I, I resonate with you. And, and I'm, I'm sharing with you the answer. If you're not in Christ, the answer is Christ. And some of you need to hear that for the first time today, that you cannot do anything to rescue yourself. But those of you who are in Christ, you are just as dependent upon the Holy Spirit today as you ever have been. And you, you hate your sin, you hate how you talk, you hate how you think. Why, why, God, do I still wrestle with this? Why is this even a thing? I thought that when I became a Christian, it was just going to be easy to say no to my sin. And the answer is not focus more on your sin. The answer is turn your eyes to Jesus and submit yourself to the Holy Spirit every single day. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is continuing to work out our faith, the one who continues to lead us and guide us and strengthen us and to make us like himself through his Holy Spirit. We are so utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit every day. Lord, help us to see it. Oh, Father, I feel that some here today, maybe this is, this is a final warning before you give them over to their flesh and say, learn the hard way. Oh, God, I'm so thankful for that warning that you gave to me weeks before that decisive moment. Oh, and I praise your holy name. I praise you, Holy Spirit, that you worked in me. And I pray for people in this room and watching online Lord, I don't know what they're going through. But if they love Jesus, I know that they hate their sin. I know they're frustrated. And Lord, I want them to live in victory and praise the Lord. Romans 8 is coming next week. And there's a victorious life in the Holy Spirit working in us. But Father, help us to recognize our need every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. 
If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.